Welcome again to Covenant Presbyterian Church. We're uh, glad that you're here this morning. We are making our way through Mark's Gospel. Our passage this morning is about the death of Jesus and the burial of Jesus. And little theologians, as I preach, would you please uh, work on a picture for me? I'd like for you to draw a big uh, sporting event. It's Olympics. Do you watch Olympics on TV? Um, It's uh, Olympics time. I want you to draw tons and tons of people watching an event. Tons of people. Huge arena. No empty seat at all. But what's happening in the middle of all the people is an event in which one person is competing. One person. There's no one in the middle of the audience except one person. So you can work on that as I uh, preach through uh, what is actually a very familiar passage. We're looking this morning at Mark chapter 15, and we'll begin uh, at uh, verse 33 and then go all the way through to the burial of Jesus. Mark 15, beginning at verse uh, 33. Before reading, let's pray together. Father, we love your word. And we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would increase our love for your word. For those who have not spent time in your word this week, we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would fill us with strength and energy and desire to give of our following week more time to the reading of your word. This is how you make yourself known. We thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit as we spend time in this word. Amen. So again, Mark chapter 15, uh, beginning at uh, verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women uh, looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, They followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he had learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene, 
and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was led. This is the word of our Lord. You know that telling people the gospel of Jesus includes telling people about the death of Jesus. Don't you know that? That that actually the proclamation of the death of a man is actually, well, a part of the proclamation of the gospel itself. But when we are preaching about the death of a man, we're not doing this for metaphorical reasons or for a, a literary symmetry that it is the event of the death that actually sets up for the resurrection. Uh, the death is really just something that, that, that triggers the need for a resurrection. We rush through death as we are preaching the gospel because we're getting, after all, to the resurrection. I think some of this is uh, probably a little bit unfair. We're not uh, preaching the death of Jesus just to have an excuse to preach the resurrection, but this passage, I, I want us to look into this passage, I want us to understand that there is more to the death of Jesus than the death of Jesus. There's something very significant that is happening here with this man, with this the Son of God. The death of Jesus isn't just the death of Jesus. Let's not rush through this. The death of Jesus is actually a work of Jesus. How strange is that? Death is something that happens to us and we're passive as it happens. But I want us to see that in the death of Jesus, there is a work that he is performing. And the work that he is is performing, I'll have to explain this, is a work that we're going to call substitution. The death of Jesus is a work of substitution. And, and what that means is not just the preaching of the gospel, but the believing in the gospel is to be saved through this work of substitution. The death of Jesus is a work of substitution, and believing in the gospel is to be saved through this substitution. So three real quick things. We go through the passage. The, the death of Jesus is a substitution. Let's begin there. And then the death of Jesus demands a response. There's a response of the centurion I want to spend some time on. There's also a response of God to the death of his son. So substitution, uh, dem- his death demands a response. And then finally, the death of Jesus is to be witnessed. So let's begin with the death of Jesus as a substitution. I think that image of, of, of going to a, a, a huge sporting event and witnessing one individual is really important. Jesus takes a center stage in this passage, and it's almost as if in the death of Jesus, we, we, we kind of have this window that opens up that we might see the kind of relationship uh, that is between uh, God the Father, God the Son, and really even God the Holy Spirit. There's a lot that's happening here, and we're invited to sit in the seats and to pay attention. You see, Jesus, he didn't just die. I mean, jumping down to verse 39, and you see the centurion, even though it's hard to tell what it is about the death of Jesus that stood out to the centurion, not sure, but he noticed something. Look at verse 39. He's facing Jesus, this centurion. How many deaths do you think that this man has seen? The centurion is likely the the one who's responsible for superintending what's happening uh, at the uh, execution of this man, Jesus. How many deaths do you think this centurion has seen? But there's something about the way in which this person dies that's different. 
Now, verse 39 is just a hint, and we want to unpack what what that might be. But Jesus died in a very different way. You see where the passage begins in verse 33. It actually begins with a a picture of uh, God the Creator who is doing something. And in verse 33, uh, Mark tells us that around noon it became abnormally dark. Up to this point, Jesus had already been abandoned by his friends and his disciples. He's already been tried and shamed. He's been led to the cross, and around 9 a.m. in the morning, uh, he is crucified. And after three hours of hanging, it gets dark. Now, this is the work of God. He is the creator of light and darkness. And he does this, and he's going to do something else later. But Mark is training us to pay attention. More is happening here than a man dying. I've read one uh, commentator saying that uh, God is making it dark so that other senses would be enlivened. Imagine that. The, the, The sense of sight goes away because it is prematurely dark. Why? Maybe God wants to heighten that sense of hearing. Because Jesus, he begins to speak, doesn't he? Verse 34, with a loud voice. This is really important. In fact, if you jump forward to verse 37, you know, Jesus is speaking there as well. Verse 37 says a loud cry, but it's actually a voice. The word for voice in 34 and 37, it's the same word. Do you think that Jesus, when he begins to speak in verse 33, that he doesn't stop until he dies? Mark doesn't tell us this, and surely he's not speaking uninterrupted between verses 34 and 37. But Jesus, he's preaching. He's talking. This stands out to us because you remember what was happening in the the trial before the Sanhedrin, in the trial before Pilate. Jesus, he has just led through all of those events. Twice we're told that Jesus didn't say a word. He was silent. He didn't open his mouth. Boy, he is now. He's making himself heard. I'm not the first one to think about the wood of the cross as the wood of a pulpit. It doesn't originate with me. But imagine Jesus hanging before this audience, mulling people, some standing, some bystanders passing by, some stopping long enough to notice just a little bit about what's happening, and yet Jesus is there hanging on a piece of wood, and he is preaching. And the words that he is preaching, his text, if you will, is Psalm 22. His last words are actually not his last words. They're the Holy Spirit's last words. Words that the Spirit gave to the psalmist David. And Jesus, he quotes from the first uh, verse of Psalm 22. And he does it in Aramaic, which would be the most familiar language of those who he sees in front of him. Mark translates the words for his audience because if he just had Aramaic, his uh, audience of Christians in Rome, they wouldn't understand it. But Jesus is expositing Scripture, reading Scripture and displaying realities of that Scripture as he hangs upon the cross. 
There's so much to say here about how Jesus is employing Psalm 22. Read Psalm 22 this afternoon. We just looked at the first 11 verses of it this morning. There's 31. Read Psalm 22. There are so many connections between these uh, words and the event of Jesus on the cross. But I want to say three things before moving on. Why is Jesus quoting Psalm 22 and what is he teaching those who are listening to him? The first thing is simply this. He's worshiping God. You know, worship is all about a relationship. Worship is about communing with God, speaking to God, hearing God. Jesus, I'm going to say three things. The first thing is Jesus is worshiping God. Notice that he says, my God, my God. Jesus has no other God. And this God is his God. He's worshiping as he bleeds on the cross. But he's also submitting to God. Isn't this phrase so difficult? That Jesus says that he's being forsaken by God, abandoned by God. But that's, that's really hard to discern exactly what's meant by that. But we have to understand that Jesus is not only worshiping God, that he is submitting to God. That's the second thing. God is doing something. Jesus really believes that God is doing something. And now what God is doing is forsaking or leaving or abandoning him. But he believes that God is not static but at work, doing something. Even as his own ankles and wrists are pinned to wood. There might be a clue to this in Deuteronomy chapter 21, where uh, Moses says that anyone who hangs on a cross is cursed by God. Jesus is submitting to a God who is cursing him. That's difficult, but he's worshiping and he's submitting. And the third thing he's doing is he's actually trusting God. Psalm 22, when you look at it this afternoon, it's really 31 verses of trust. God is entirely in control of the life of the writer of Psalm 22. And it is a difficult, tragic season. But the writer of Psalm 22 does not believe that God has completely left him and has no affection for him. When you look at Psalm 22, Psalm 22 is about trust. Trust that God is in control. Trust that his plan, though it's hard, his plan will ultimately succeed. I mean, if you look at the very ending of Psalm 22, the psalmist, the one who says, why are you forsaking me, actually ends with words that that show his trust in God's plan. God is one day going to be worshipped by coming generations. That's how Psalm 22 ends. Jesus is hanging on the cross and he's worshiping and he's submitting and he's trusting. And one wonders if the centurion knows what dying people look like and what they normally do is they rage against injustice. They spit from the heights of the cross at those who are beneath them. They cry in a pain that is indistinct, nothing but but warbling sounds where they just give up, do nothing and they just die. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus is worshiping and submitting, and he's trusting. What do you think we're to make of this? What is it that's happening in the death of Jesus? 
It's something the centurion's never seen and we should take note. I want to introduce you to the word substitution. We all know that in this particular scene, where are the disciples? <laughs> Aren't they gone? I mean, we have women and they're followers of Jesus, but the disciples, they seem to be gone. But over time, the disciples are going to realize that Jesus in his death on the cross is actually a substitution for the sinfulness and the punishment of themselves. And here's where we understand this. Two verses, Galatians 3.13, Paul says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How oh, do you hear that? Deuteronomy 21. Yes, everyone who does hang on a cross is cursed. But Paul says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Well, that's what he's doing on the cross. He's becoming a curse for us. He's redeeming us from the curse of the law. He's redeeming us from our unrighteousness and our need for punishment. That's what Jesus is doing on the cross. That's Galatians 3.13. Jesus is becoming a curse. He's redeeming us from the curse. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Uh, 2 Corinthians. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin. Now do you begin to see what's happening at this cross? God, he's making Jesus to be sin. He's cursing him for sin, even though Jesus knew no sin. Why is God doing this? Why is God making Jesus to be sin and then cursing him for that sin? Why? 2 Corinthians 5.21, so that in Jesus, we, you and me, Christian, might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became the recipient of our punishment so that we might become the recipients of God's righteousness and favor. This, this is not veiled in Scripture. This is noisy in Scripture. The work of Jesus is a work of substitution. And what happens if we miss this truth? There's actually a picture of this right before us. What happens if we miss this truth of substitution? Do you know what happens? Jesus, he just becomes a folk hero of our own imagination. That's what the bystanders are doing. You see them in verse 35. It's almost as if they don't hear Psalm 32 or they don't care about Psalm 32. They hear some E word and it's said twice. And then immediately they jump not to the truth of God's word by God's Holy Spirit. They instead jump to the, well, the truth of their own expectations and their own hopes. There was a, 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 a mythology or a tradition or a story that Elijah, because he disappeared in a whirlwind, we don't know how that guy died. Elijah, he's going to come back and do something amazing. And maybe Elijah is still traveling in that whirlwind and he is going to come and he's going to grab Jesus and pluck Jesus uh, right off that cross and bring Jesus into the same whirlwind into heaven. You know, the offer of uh, mild vinegar to Jesus. I really believe that Mark wants us to understand that they're giving him vinegar because they want to hear him talk more about this Elijah and the upcoming rescue. They want front row seats for that. If we don't understand that Jesus is working on the cross as a substitute for our sin, Jesus is just going to become a little token of our imagination. 
We won't believe that we need him. We won't see our sin on that cross. Uh, We will assume that we can stand before God with righteousness simply because uh, we're great and if we're not perfect, we're still closer to perfect than the person on my left and on my right. That's mythology. If you don't understand substitution, you'll miss everything about the death of Jesus. And many people will believe anything about Jesus apart from substitution. Substitution is the last thing they want to believe. Now, the death of Jesus demands a response. We're going to see a couple of responses here. Verses 38 and 39. You see, God made everything dark. Uh, That's what he did. But he does something else. God tears a curtain. Now, there's two curtains uh, in the, uh, at the temple. There's an inner curtain and an outer curtain. And the inner curtain would be that one that divided the Holy of Holies, the holiest part of the temple, from the court of the Jews, a court in which only Jewish men are allowed. That inner temple was uh, 30 feet by 30 feet. It was blue and purple, and it had images of angels all over it. The outer curtain was actually much larger, nearly 80 feet high. And this outer curtain was the one that divided that that court of the Jews, where where Jewish men could be, um, and it divided that from the court of the women, but also the court of the Gentiles. So you can actually stand on the back side of the court of the Gentiles, and you can look over the court of the women, and you can see this 80-foot-tall woven tapestry. And this tapestry is brown and purple and red, and it depicts all of life, uh, animals from the ocean to the land, but all the way up into the spiritual world of heaven. We have a couple of, not many, but a couple of testimonies of what this curtain uh, would have looked like. Now, was it the inner or the outer curtain that was torn by God? Short answer, I don't know, and you don't either. Short answer. The writer of Hebrews seems to indicate that it was the the inner uh, curtain that was torn, the one that actually provides us access into the holy of holies. But I wonder if it isn't that larger outer curtain. It's really the same thing. This curtain being torn allows access from the whole world into the very presence of God through Jesus. But that outer curtain, it's massive. It's a five-story building. You can see it at a great distance. And when God tore this, he tore it, Mark tells us, from top to bottom. Eighty feet up. The one who makes his presence known in heaven from 80 feet up, the fingers of God, the finger that wrote the law of God, pinches that curtain and tears it from top to bottom, all the way down. He's tearing open heaven. That's how close he comes to us in Jesus. Something like this, it would have been loud. I don't don't think that the Roman centurion would have heard the tearing. But it would be really loud. Five-story tapestry? It would make a noise. You can imagine what the noise would be. And it would be extremely public. Everyone would see that. And it would be violent in a sense. I mean, how in the world did that happen? Wind can't do that. And not only this, this curtain, if it's torn, it would take months to repair. There would be scaffolding all around that thing to get that thing fixed. It would be very public. There would be all kinds of rumors. And let's be honest, it's going to make the Jews look a little bit foolish. Massive architectural failure at the temple. 
Now, when Jesus was baptized, you remember, don't you? Long time ago, Mark chapter 1, you remember the heavens were torn open. Fingertips of God pinching the corners of heaven, tearing it open. Why would he do that? The, the Holy Spirit descends upon our Lord and Savior, and God, he speaks. And at the baptism of Jesus, God says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And he tears open heaven. Maybe this is God's calling card in a way. This is God's signature. He's doing this. You might think that there's some kind of astronomical influence with regards to it becoming dark at noon. What are you going to say about this? Jesus, who said that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, well, we're already beginning to see that happen. 80-foot curtain torn in two. That temple, it's as good as down. Now, if Jesus has this great power to substitute for our sinfulness, to remove a God's curse of sin from us, then he has the power to usher us into the very presence of God. Now we have something to preach as well. The preacher on the cross has done something that actually allows us to preach. What do we have to preach? The curtain is torn. You can be righteous before God. The way is open, and the way is through Jesus. There's another response very quickly, the Roman centurion. I studied this guy a lot. I cannot, I cannot tell you that this guy became a Christian. I think that this is a believer. John Calvin doesn't. That immediately makes me nervous. <laughs> but this man is seeing the death of Jesus, but he's seeing so much more. A man who saw a lot of death has seen something he's never seen before. And his only response is a doxology. We should take notice of that. His only response is actually a beautiful praise. Truly this man was the son of God. This one's different. Why? Because he's performing a work that only he can perform. And he does it. And God is well pleased. Now here's where I want to finish. Third main, main point, by the way, isn't always the conclusion, but it is this morning. Look at verse 40, and you'll see something about women. And then look at verse 47, something about women. We've, we've talked about this before. Mark will sometimes build these little sandwiches where he'll, 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 he'll surround something that's important with these little uh, bookmarks at the end. And I think 40 and 47 are bookmarks. I, I think that uh, the, the women are very important. We're to understand uh, what they're doing, to take note of them. They serve as uh, bookmarks on either side of what is happening uh, with uh, Joseph of Arimathea. And these women, they've been with Jesus for a while, but notice in verse 40 that we're told the past of these women. We're not told very much about their present, are we? We're told about their past, that these are women who have known, uh, uh, they, they knew Jesus, they're with him, they followed him, ministered to him, they came up from Jerusalem with him. But what are they doing right now? I think this is important, because what they're doing right now is just watching, looking, seeing, 
Three different words in the Greek, by the way, verses 40 uh, 40 and 41 and 47. It's three different words for seeing. Mark wants us to understand something. They're watching, they're looking, they're paying attention. This is critical. Why is this critical? Because we profess faith in Jesus. And what is our job as Christians? To watch Jesus, to look at him, to tell people what we see. That's what these women are going to do. They're just going to report what he's done. If you feel as though you don't have quite what it takes to be a good Christian, not quite spiritual enough, and there are people around you who are more spiritual, and you seem to be aware of this all of the time, that's good. You should be aware of your lack of holiness. Your job as a Christian is to watch the work of another, to believe in the work of another, to tell others about the work of another. Your Jesus worked for your salvation even in his death. Your Jesus took upon his own shoulders your sins. Your Jesus died so that you might have life. Would you tell others that? This is what you notice. (laughs) This is the job of a Christian. They witness. They watch his work. They keep their focus on him, and they tell others what they've witnessed. Jesus died as a substitute for your salvation if you profess faith in Jesus. That work was a work of substitution. Believing in the gospel is to be saved through this substitution. Pay attention and tell others. Would you pray with me? Dear Father, We have life because of the work of someone else. We ask that you would forgive us for our boastfulness, for our arrogance. But we also ask that you would forgive us for a false sense of guilt because we just don't feel as spiritual as others. Jesus worked for our salvation. We have done nothing. Would you help us to pay attention to that work? In his name. Amen.